By many measures, this pandemic has been disastrous for people with disabilities. In England, six out of every 10 people who died from COVID in 2020 had a disability. In the U.S., similar data are alarmingly impossible to find. But studies here do show some people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are up to eight times more likely to die of COVID. Those numbers are no surprise to the people who lead the lives behind them. Everyone with a disability that I know was like, how do we survive this and not die? That was the conversation. Everyone said they were going to die. Today, one woman living with a disability on a year of fearing, fighting, and ultimately surviving a pandemic. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Around this time last summer, J.D. Flores should have been out with friends celebrating some big milestones, a 30th birthday, a one-year work anniversary at what she calls her first big girl job. Instead, she marked the occasions barricaded inside her parents' house, terrified. I was like, man, I can't ever leave my house. I'm going to die. And I was telling my mom, I was like, Ma, we can't let nobody in this house. J.D. was born in Puerto Rico and moved to Rochester, New York at two years old. And that's where she lives today, with her mom, dad, and brother. Since birth, she's also lived with cerebral palsy, a neurological disorder. The easiest way to really explain it is if we think of our body like a river or a stream, right? Our brain sends off boats to every limb in your body. And that message tells your body what to do. So my boat is on is in the, the lazy river because the boat works slower to get to all of my limbs. How does that disease manifest itself in you? You could put 100 people with cerebral palsy in the room and no one would be the same. For me, I struggle with fine motor skills. I don't walk. I have issues with balance. I can't, you know, I can't stretch my arms out all the way. I can't stretch my legs out all the way. I don't have a lot of trunk control. So that's just what it looks like for me. In several ways, J.D.'s disability set her up to handle all the pandemic could throw at her. First, she's been forced to deliberately think about how to get around. She relies on wheelchairs so much, she's named every chair she's ever had. This one is Clyde. My chair before this name was Bonnie. Bonnie was like the truth. It was the best chair I ever had in my life. Then, there's all the logistics. All the hours J.D. spent scoping out stores' websites for surprise stairs and accessible bathrooms, planning who's going to pick her up, who's going to drop her off. There is not a place and time in my life that I can tell you like, ooh, I was spontaneous then. Like, never. No, I needed to plan today yesterday. And finally, J.D. depends a lot on friends and family, a group she calls her own personal army. So yes, I'm 30, but I live at my mama's house because truly that is the safest place for me to be. Put it all together and JD had what we all wanted in lockdown, a close-knit support circle and a whole lot of prepping and planning skills. But those strengths, says JD, could only help so much in the face of the pandemic's major dual threats. First, there was the economy. J.D. works as a disability advocate and educator at an academic medical center she'd prefer not to name. It's a job that took her years to get. Money is a constant worry for me. I worked as an AmeriCorps member before this position, and I was making 3 to $4 an hour. So I was broke. 
So making $45,000 a year now is a big deal. As soon as COVID hit, JD worried her job would get cut. I was afraid that I was going to be furloughed. So I didn't spend a dollar out of place. If I did, I was nervous because I was like, oh my God, I shouldn't have did that because I don't know what's going to happen. That self-imposed austerity ultimately put JD in a tough spot one day when she was out with her mom getting groceries. Normally, I can run laps in a Walmart and be fine. I get to the parking lot and Clyde couldn't make it up the ramp into my van. My mama is like five foot one and she's trying to push this 300 pound chair in the car because the chair is dead. And so I'm trying to pull from inside of the car anything I can to help with like some of the force. And we couldn't get it really in the car because it was dying. Clyde's battery kept giving out. For JD, this wasn't like her laptop dying on the plane or iPhone overheating. Her house on wheels malfunctioning threatened to immobilize her, turning her into even more of a COVID captive. Like my wheelchair not working is like top three of the things that could go wrong in my life. It's a huge deal. Like when this wheelchair stops, my world stops. Imagine having to pee and be at the mercy of someone else, wanting to eat and not being able to move from one room to the next, not having the luxury of just going to wash your body when you want to. A similar repair eight years ago had set JD back 500 bucks. Many of us worried about our finances during the pandemic, and JD's family was no different, especially after her dad lost his job that summer. If it was pinching pennies or having some modicum of freedom, JD decided to save the money. So she spent the first six months of the pandemic working around this problem. Anytime I wasn't moving, I was charging because if not, like Clyde was dead. J.D. stopped counting on people too small or weak to push Clyde if he died. That included her respite worker, who she relied on to get out of her house and away from her family. And I was like, I can't go nowhere with her because as a pregnant woman can't push this chair into this van. She even stopped having outdoor visits with her friends because Clyde couldn't make it through the tall grass. So she finally decided to call up a local wheelchair repair company. Three weeks later, Clyde's battery was replaced, and he was running like new. But the biggest relief of all came when the repairman handed J.D. the bill. Once he said, I didn't owe anything, I was like, praise Jesus, Allah, and everybody and their mama. Um, And I just signed my name and was just grateful that there wasn't a cost to me. Her insurance had picked up the entire cost. In a lot of ways, J.D.'s saga with Clyde epitomizes what the past year and a half has been like for her. Days full of fear and anxiety, but also creativity and resiliency, fighting and ultimately making it through. But as stressful as J.D.'s financial worries have been, they pale in comparison to the other big threat COVID posed, the one to her health. When we come back, medical rationing begins group home deaths rise, and J.D. sees a sliver of hope. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back. Today, we're following the journey of J.D. Flores through the last year of the pandemic. She lives in Rochester, New York with cerebral palsy, a developmental disability. And for most of 2020 and the beginning of this year, one single thought terrorized J.D.'s mind. When the shutdown was first being announced, I'm like, damn, I'm going to die. But I'm afraid to die. I'm going to die. This fear of dying, if I was talking to you, I was telling you I was going to die. J.D. says she stayed up until 3 a.m. most nights, wondering whose hand she'd touched. Was that body ache an early sign of the virus or just a cerebral palsy spasm? Both her dad and her brother are essential workers, and J.D. knew her lungs were compromised. She had asthma and had gotten pneumonia early in 2020. All risks, sure. But the reason J.D. was so scared she had absolutely zero trust in the U.S. healthcare system, a fear that was affirmed by news out of Texas just a few months into the pandemic. It is an exchange that's gotten a lot of attention online. A doctor at St. David's Hospital in Austin seemingly refusing to treat a patient. Michael Hickson died less than a week after the hospital stopped his treatment. Several disability organizations have filed complaints against they St. Say David's They say he was hospital. denied treatment because of his significant disabilities. They killed that man because he was a quadriplegic and they were like, why would he want to live? And they let him die. When you read that story, what were some of the things that went through your head about you? So I just knew that this meant that I would die if it was my turn. That I would be him. Like, he wasn't him to me. He was me to me. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we just trade places. The healthcare system hadn't ever left JD for dead, but it had certainly made her feel invisible, like a second class patient. Identifying as Hispanic, black, and disabled, JD says she can never be sure why she isn't getting the care she needs, but whatever it is, it usually feels like bias. Like during a recent hospital stay when JD sat in her chair, hooked up to an IV, desperate to use the bathroom and no one came to help for 45 minutes. She was angry, she says, but not surprised. I mean, that's repeated to us in every shape, way, or form. There's not one piece of realm of life where people with disabilities aren't made to feel less than. JD continued to see how the larger healthcare system kept failing people like her during the pandemic. Behind the walls of this group home for the developmentally disabled in Bayville, Long Island, fevers were spreading like wildfire. People with intellectual and developmental disabilities were at great risk. There is growing concern tonight about COVID-19 and the thousands of people with developmental disabilities who are living in group homes. New numbers show coronavirus cases are soaring in adult group homes 
More than 1,000 have tested positive, and it's not Experts say there's no national tally of how many total people with disabilities, or even just in group homes, died of COVID. But the state data we do have, for example, show the mortality rate in New York group homes was eight times the statewide rate. And in Oregon, people who caught COVID in group homes were four times more likely to die than others in the state. Together, all those stats, all her past experiences, had JD prepared for the worst. That meant that my army needed to be ready, right? And so at any stage, if something was to happen to me, they needed to be ready to fight. We were constantly having these conversations, me and my friends, me and my parents, me and my family members, that if I was to get COVID, that there were things that they needed to do so they could assure that I really was receiving the care that I needed. Because if not, I was going to die. JD's pretty consistently held the U.S. healthcare system in low regard. And living through all of this has just cemented her views. The healthcare system has been trashed for people with disabilities before COVID. It is trashed now, and it'll be trashed afterwards. The rub for JD and the larger disability community is that she counts on the U.S. healthcare system, no matter how poorly she's treated. At the beginning of COVID, JD says she and her friends with disabilities talked about the same two goals over and over. One is how do we get the vaccine? Two, how do we survive this and not die? JD was lucky. She got vaccinated pretty early back in March. That was not the case for everyone with disabilities. So here we are in July. And yes, JD's been constantly stressed by the economy, the virus, and the healthcare system. But she's managed to meet both goals. She still has her job. And even though she got COVID back in January, she never got too sick. There was one other bright spot. The corporate world finally started to transform in ways JD and others with disabilities had been demanding for years. For me, it's beautiful because I live in a place that is cold and it snows for a very long time. JD gets to work from the comfort of her home, where she doesn't have to deal with unshoveled sidewalks and icy roads, where she knows that the bathroom is wheelchair accessible. That makes my life 10 times easier. You know, the the energy and time that I would spend to prep to get to you, I don't have to spend that so I can do a better job for you because I, I can navigate my energy different. JD's even pursuing a master's degree that she'd put off because she worried about the logistics of getting around a campus. And at the same time, this newfound flexibility is bittersweet and could be fleeting. When people with disabilities asked for similar accommodations for years, schools and employers have repeatedly told them there's just no way. Now, J.D. and other advocates wonder if they'll have to fight these fights all over again when COVID fades. When we talk about going back to normal, what do you mean when you say normal? Like, what do I, like, what do I really got to explain and say so that you, you see that this is a value that I, you know, I feel like I work harder at home than I do at work. So it's like, how, how do I navigate that and how do I have those kind of conversations? J.D. says those concerns highlight the importance of legislation to take decisions out of the hands of individuals and employers who don't always have the same priorities. She says the Americans with Disabilities Act, which turns 31 years old this summer, is in desperate need of an update. As J.D. and other advocates fight for those kinds of advances, 
they may suddenly have millions more Americans by their side. Of the more than 30 million people who have had COVID in the U.S., experts estimate as many as a quarter suffer from a new kind of disability, known as long COVID, whose symptoms can include brain fog, fatigue, and muscle pain. For them, JD's got a few simple pieces of advice for navigating their new normal. First, get on social media. There's bound to be plenty of groups of of COVID survivors where you can share like today sucked. Second, take advantage of the invisibility of your new disability. The perception is still that you're you. So use that to your advantage and demand more in the spaces that you're in. Third, share your voice. Really be open and honest and be willing to be vulnerable. It's going to be uncomfortable at first, but people with disabilities, we don't really have a choice. And last, never forget that you matter. That's the thing. You always matter. Like, especially if you survive COVID. To me, anyone who survives any kind of illness that could have been terminal, the universe said, oh, you need to be here. You ain't done yet. So if you got purpose, then you need to live in that because the universe ain't done with you. JD, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us on Tradeoffs. No worries. Glad to be here. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Twenty twenty one is on pace to be the deadliest year of gun violence in the last twenty years. Just over the July fourth weekend, one hundred and eighty people were killed. The losses that we suffered this year have been pretty devastating of people who actually been doing this work. And those are hard to come back from. We talk with a violence prevention program in Baltimore about navigating the pandemic and what they're doing to keep safe the young men most at risk. Next time on Tradeoffs. If you enjoyed today's episode of Tradeoffs, leave us a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. You can keep in touch with us between episodes by following us on Twitter at TradeoffsPod or sign up for our newsletter at tradeoffs.org. The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Mary Franklin Harvin, Chief of Strategy and Operations Jessica Silverman, Operations Assistant Jamie Song, Sound Designer Andrew Perella, and Senior Producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Additional thanks to Sarah Ailey and Kate Ellis. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Laura Lane, John Sawyer, and Christine Lorenz. Tradeoffs is supported in part by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, West Health, the California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.